Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So I think that we're gonna learn quite a little bit with our guest today because I think that she's seen it all, done it all, been on very large rocket ships, also done her own, uh, and now going to the other side of the table as an investor. But I guess without further ado, let's let her tell us about it. So Minnie Ingersoll, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alejandro. G- glad to be here. Originally from the land where movies are created, from L.A. So uh, how was life growing up there? Uh, L.A. was great. I uh, I grew up in Pasadena, which is not really... I mean, it is where a lot of movies are made, but it's not the heart of Hollywood. And my parents are, um, are academics. And so I grew up in a very strongly academic household. My father is at Caltech. And, um, and it was just a nice place to grow up. So then why did you decide to go to Stanford? Well, um, a, a few things. So I uh, I knew I was interested. I was kind of a nerdy kid um, and I liked math and I thought I wanted to study math. Um, I did not want to go to college across the street at Caltech. Um, and so I went to Stanford and I was looking for something kind of um, technical, I guess. And, and at the time I thought I, I wanted to do math, but really at Stanford in the nineties, so much of the innovation and sort of the exciting stuff was coming out of the computer science department. And so really it was kind of lucky that I showed up at Stanford when I did. And, and also computers. So, so why computers? Yeah. Well, computers kind of appealed to my, um, my sort of mathy engineering brain, Um, and, and it was that I was sort of good at programming, but also it was this, this aspect of having a family, not just my parents, but my siblings of, of academics. I actually wanted something that was really touching the real world and wanting, I I wanted to have, you know, not be in, I guess, an ivory tower to some degree and really wanted to be where things were happening in society and um, computer science was full of innovation and it it was a really good fit. Um, this is kind of before people were talking about startups, but the whole notion of startups and um, and things that were rapidly changing was very appealing to me. And obviously, as they say, you know, nothing that, uh, that kills you at the end, you know, if it doesn't kill you, it's just going to make you stronger. And I know that 
you had quite a, a experience, you know, here at Stanford, uh, and uh, you know, perhaps something that really got you a little bit stronger uh, as well. So, what what happened there? Well, a few things. So, yes, I mean, I I would say that computer science by itself was just a really hard major for me. Like, it wasn't. You know, I decided to do computer science, but then ended up not doing a lot of other things. Um, and I, I, I actually went into a pretty hard time at Stanford where um, I stopped doing things like exercising and sleeping um, and eating healthy. And I just, I got in a really bad spiral at one point. So not only was sort of the, you know, the academics were, were challenging, but it was really more that I let myself get too focused on, um, I don't know, I, I got in just a bad loop and I ended up, uh, dropping out of Stanford, not like dropping out in the, in the Peter Thiel way, where, but I, I ended up dropping out and just moving back home with my, my parents and, uh, thought that I was never going to graduate from school because I was just in such a dark place really. Um, but you know, if you, if you go back to Stanford one semester later, then they just, Instead of calling it dropping out, they call it stopping out, <laughs> and uh, and I've managed to to graduate on time. So so you know it was like you say it was um, it was a good character building experience, and I think not just my own character building, but I think it made me actually more empathetic for other people who are going through their own different hard times. So what do you think was there for you to learn? Um, in terms of just my own journey going through that. Yeah, I guess from like this stopping out, um, yeah. uh, I guess uh, I guess what was it? Because I think that yeah. every single experience, you know, that, that we have or that we go through, you know, like it just leaves kind of like a lesson for us to learn. I guess what, what was yours? Many different ones. And you're right. Like, I think it actually changed fundamentally who I am as a person. Um, and I, I one of them was the need to ask for help um, and and also to be able to receive help. Uh, I don't think I would have gotten t through my dark times if other people hadn't helped me. Um, and yet I think when I was younger and sort of, you know, when everything was a little easier and I was sort of in my sheltered, um, high school Pasadena experience, um, you know, I didn't feel like I needed to ask for help. And I think it, it made me feel much more grateful to those people who reach out their, hands, um, to others. And, and so for me asking for help at the times when it's hardest to ask for help has been something that, um, I wish I could do more of. And, and actually when I, you know, get the opportunity to be a mentor, um, I try to help people articulate for themselves where they want to be and what they need help on, because I don't think people are actually good at articulating where they need help. Yeah. And I love that because You know, there's actually some some places like like Europe, like in Spain, you know, where I'm from originally, you know, people don't really ask for help. They're embarrassed. And, you know, when you actually go out and you ask for help, you know, like you would be surprised of how people, you know, like really are willing to to extend the hand and, and really make a difference, you know, and help you. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, really cool. So then so then after Stanford, what happens? Um, great. So finish Stanford. Uh, got a job as a product manager. I didn't think I wanted to code, um, uh, but I got a, a job as a product manager at a company called Live Person. This is early days of e-commerce, and Live Person was a live chat tool. Um, maybe think of like in intercom or something now. Um, but this is when people were nervous about putting their credit cards um, into the internet to actually buy something online. It made great sense to me as a product manager. I was really excited about it. 
But then we IPO'd uh, in March or April of 2000, right before the whole dot-com bubble burst. And uh, I don't, I, I don't remember exactly. I, we had revenues, but we didn't have profits. And yet we just IPO'd and, um, and everyone said, look, dot-coms are over. E-commerce is over. Everything's over. Um, and I think that we had gone on an amazing growth spurt, but it looked like we were going to have to do layoffs. And so I, um, I went back to, I went to business school. So you see, you went to to Harvard, and uh, I mean it's it's amazing because Stanford now Harvard. I mean it's uh, like the CV gold. So so why why did you think it was like the the right time? And I guess and I guess what have you learned about like going to these institutions where the network is is unbelievable? Yeah, um, the networks are unbelievable. Uh, and, you know, that was certainly some of what I, I got out of that experience. But, um, you know, I think now uh, I would I would go back to business school now if I could, um, because I, I feel like I, I'm much more wide open to all of the sort of the way businesses, especially startups, where you're expected to wear so many different hats and you really need to know a little bit about everything. If, you know, if you don't have a whole marketing team supporting you, you need to know a little bit about many things. Um, and so, so, you know, there was nice to get a broad exposure there, but I think personally for me, just to stick on the sort of personal front, the thing that I got the most from business school was probably a confidence that I wasn't missing something. And it's kind of a personal pet peeve of mine when people say either I'm not technical enough to understand your business, or they say, well, I don't have a business degree, so I can't, you know, I can't make you a basic model for, you know, I can't forecast my revenues and expenses or something. And, and both of these things, um, I believe are constantly evolving sort of what, what the state of technology is and, and what you need to know to be successful in businesses. Um, and I think that Harvard business school gave me the confidence to know that I wasn't missing some secret formula um, but that I could actually sort of feel like empowered to, to, to kind of go forward and, um, eventually start my own business. Got it. And it definitely gave you the push to join one of the uh, biggest success stories of all time. So a company that when you joined, it was 500 people. Tell us about this. Right. So I joined Google, uh, in 2002 out of Harvard business school and, you know, to some degree, I'm not sure it was HBS that gave me that push. When when I finished in 2002, very few people were um, going into startups at all. Um, going into tech, some people were, but um, no one, you know, from my class went to Google or even interviewed at Google, I don't believe. Um, and so, you know, some of it for me was I, I knew that I wanted to be back in, in Silicon Valley and um, Google was the biggest place I interviewed. And at the time, you know, I interviewed with uh, Larry and Eric and Salar and Susan and Marissa and people who are now, you know, uh, still household names, but at the time weren't. Um, and so it was just a great chance to get in early and, um, and uh, it was the biggest place I interviewed at, actually. It was 500 people, and I thought I really wanted to be somewhere really small. Um, but, of course, it turned out to be a great choice. And I guess, uh, you know, all the people that I interview, they always talk about, like, the importance of surrounding yourself by the right people. And I guess, like, here you were able to 
to kind of like see like this team that that obviously you know it was 500 people but still you know like you were able to see things at a, at a smaller scale kind of kind of thing so i guess what how do you think they were able to assemble such an unbelievable team of people because all of these guys you know have gone out and and done unbelievable things so so what what, what did you see from that well, a few different things. I think, you know, one of my biggest lessons of spending a decade plus there was um, the importance of hiring and interviewing um, and the, the you know, the, the secret of success of interviewing, I believe there is no real secret, which is you just have to spend a lot of time on it and make sure everyone knows that it is a company priority. And so, the what I think everyone says I, I I you know I hear a lot of entrepreneurs say that they want to build the best team, um, and they understand the importance of of hiring, but they don't realize that you know at times I was spending a third of my time hiring. Usually it was probably more like a quarter, but it was let's call it you know three hours a day, which means you know I'm interviewing people, I'm writing up my interview notes within 24 hours. I'm sitting in in hiring committee meetings to discuss candidates, to review resumes, all of that. And so, um, so I think you know that was one of the things I learned at Google was you know if we didn't get our interview notes in within 24 hours, Jonathan Rosenberg, who ran product at the time, would come hunt you down and give you you know angry looks. So, um, so I just learned about the the time required to interview well. Got it. So. Obviously, when when you interview well, what was that time? You know, for example, like for example, like for a good interview, how long would that be, and what would be like the most important question, like one question that you were really paying attention to the answer? Well, you know, I'll 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 say that I think, um, especially in places um, smaller companies, I think um, the the most important part of interviewing is actually all the work that's done up front. Um, and so, you know, at Google, where you might be hiring a hundred people to, you know, a hundred software engineers who are all sort of being hired into the same role, maybe you don't have to spend all that time up front, but a lot of times at startups, each position is its own unique position. You're not hiring 10, um, directors of engineering or something. So, um, and so for me, I would say the, the most important stuff is all the work that's done up front to make sure that you know what success looks like for the candidate you're going to hire in 18 months and that you, that you and everybody else who's going to be part of, let's say the hiring committee know what have agreed on what success is going to look like for this candidate. And then once you agree on sort of what success looks like to have agreed on what the attributes are that you think this candidate has to have in order to be successful. And then furthermore, I have crafted a thoughtful interview panel so that you know, who is going to be, testing for which of those attributes. And then depending on that, um, uh, the most important questions might differ based on sort of what you're trying to suss out or what sort of attributes you're, you're looking for. Uh, But that said, if you want to know one of my favorite interview questions, um, for sort of a product manager, I like to ask a product manager, um, to tell me about a time that they've disagreed with their tech lead. Um, because I, it's an interesting look into um, exactly what they've been doing and also sort of how sort of their dynamics of interaction with engineering. And also probably it's an interesting reaction because they're like, Oh my God, I wasn't expecting that. So, uh, so that's a good one. But obviously here at Google, you were for like 12 years. Um, so that's a long time. So, so I guess if you had to kind of like uh, really 
outline or, or describe to everyone who is listening, like out of this 12 years, if you had to describe like your three biggest takeaways, your three biggest lessons, what would those be and why? Okay. Well, I mean, I think the biggest one that I took away that, uh, that's now sort of commonplace in the Valley, I think is asking the question, what's best for the user and asking that over and over. And it was just, I mean, now it sort of sounds trite, but, um, but it's one of those, um, my mother likes the expression repetition doesn't ruin the prayer as in you can ask this question over and over and it doesn't become less powerful. And so I think Google just walked around asking that question, well, what's best for the user? Should we do this? Should we do that? Well, what's best for the user? Um, and so that was, that was one piece that, that, um, I took away is just keep asking that. Um, another big thing for me that's very relevant now in my role in venture capital is Google, um, I, Sergey, I think started this, but, um, he used to say, well, is this a $5 billion business? Um, and you know, for Google, once, once Google got to a certain scale, things that were small bets weren't interesting. And to some degree, I think Google resembles, uh, venture capital or venture capital fund in that, um, Google needs to make big bets. And those big bets need to be on the tune of a $5 billion bet in order for Google to, you know, it's, it's actually okay if some of those bets, um, sort of don't pan out and maybe go to zero as long as there's a few that become world changing ideas. And so sort of that like ability to always think bigger, no matter what I was thinking, I think Larry and Sergey in particular would always sort of question whether we were thinking big enough. Interesting. Interesting. And obviously this was, um, a nice uh, segue uh, into what would become for you starting your own business. So, um, so I mean, after so long being in such a rocket ship, I mean, when you were leaving Google, there were 60,000 people. You started when they were 500. So, so what, what really happened for you there to really say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go out and, and do this thing? <laughs> well, um, I, you know, for me, like my personal story is a little bit of, I was actually on maternity leave from Google and, uh, and I, um, I had been, a, an angel investor, um, mostly doing angel investments, uh, into sort of my friends who I thought were, um, you know, incredible people likely to build incredible businesses, but I wasn't necessarily spending a whole lot of time um, vetting the business so much as, as knowing the teams. And so my friend, George, George Arison used to actually <laughs> used to work for me at Google. Um, and I remind him of this because he became my co-founder and CEO of shift, the company that we started together. And then he became my boss, but, um, he had been talking to me about this idea that he had for a long time. And I decided to angel invest in him, essentially. It, and it was George in a PowerPoint at the time. Um, but so I angel invested in him and I went on maternity leave. And one day he said, you know, Minnie, I could really use your help. And then, you know, the next day I, I maybe I worked with him a little bit. And he said, you know, you could really help us get this thing going. And um, and I got, I got more and more sucked in and really um, got more understood the, the vision much better as I got more into it. And, you know, the vision of course then changed and I sort of helped shape the vision, but it started with sort of a ten, a, the, the tenant that, um, buying and selling used cars is really broken and hasn't, it's a huge industry that hasn't changed in a hundred years to some degree. 
Um, and, and, uh, you know, for me, I had been telling George, sure, I'll angel invest. I actually went to sell my car myself, thought I could sell it on Craigslist, had sort of a crazy experience doing that when I was actually eight months pregnant at the time. And, um, and, and gradually got more sort of up to speed on the space. And we started selling some of my friends' cars and, and kind of got hooked on, on, on just moving fast and, and being part of a startup, which was quite different than, you know, at the time Google was a 60,000 person company. And so, um, I, it, it was, it felt like a number of things that sort of converged to make it possible in my life to, um, to take the risk and, and to actually do shift full time. So let's talk about the early days and especially those days where you were parking cars outside of the apartment and moving them around where there was some street cleaning. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I just think at this point, shift is, um, is, uh, we've raised hundreds of millions of dollars and, um, we're a, a reasonably large business. Um, and I think it's important to, to realize that when we started, um, I was just showing up at George's apartment every day at 10 and saying like, George, are you up? Are you dressed? Like today it's 10 o'clock. Um, And we, you know, we didn't know exactly where things would take us, but we figured we would just start buying and selling cars on Craigslist and we would learn a lot by doing that. And so, you know, we would at any point in time have half a dozen to a dozen cars that we, we were selling on Craigslist, but hadn't sold yet. And so, you know, if you have seven cars parked in front of your house in San Francisco, um, street cleaning happens once a week and we'd wake up early and have to move all the cars, but of course they're not our cars. And, um, so, you know, you have to remember which cars are yours and where they're parked and, um, you know, just humble beginnings, I guess, is a fair way of, of summarizing how we got started. So then how did you guys go about building the supply and the demand? Well, um, so, you know, I, I now look at a lot of marketplaces and have thought some about how do you build both sides of a marketplace and what does liquidity need to look like? Uh, the nice thing for us was we were fairly much able to build up the supply side of our marketplace without um, also building the demand side simultaneously um, in the sense that we could acquire cars. And then if we had good cars to sell and no one was coming to shift.com, which at the time we didn't own that um, domain, we, we could still sell the cars on cars.com or auto trader or Craigslist um, or car gurus or any number of existing sites. Uh, so we didn't actually require people to necessarily know to come to us, which was a nice way of being able to essentially focus on one side of the market initially without having to focus on both sides of the market. Okay. Got it. So then, so then what, how do you guys like go about building the business and especially financing the the company? Yeah. Well, initially what we were doing was the way the shift model works and, and especially early on, you know, some things have changed a bit, but we were kind of, it was kind of resembled consignment as in, we said to someone who was selling their car, we would say, look, we will sell your car for you and we will give you a guaranteed minimum price And anything we sell the car for above that price, we will split 50-50 with you. And so it didn't require a lot of initial capital from us 
to buy the cars because we weren't actually buying them. So the car would still be owned by, by the seller in this case. Um, and so we were able to, to sort of play around with this without actually needing much capital up front. But our, our value proposition was most people are not good at selling the car, their cars themselves. And they, they might post their car on Craigslist, but not even look to, to post their car on AutoTrader or CarGurus, Cars.com, let alone sort of get their car the best exposure. Because there's a little bit of, there's some, some art to, um, to sort of SEOing the listing sites. So, um, so really we raised some friends and family money, um, and we're able to get a little bit of traction, um, with, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars, but then interestingly, and I, and I see this happen to a lot of people, once we had raised half a million dollars, then everyone wanted in. And then we raised a 3 million, a little over $3 million seed round. But it was the first five hundred thousand were really hard. Um, uh, even though we ended up with three million, it it wasn't you know it wasn't a walk in the park by any means. So what what is the tipping point there? Because I think that you're right. You know the the first tranche is uh, is a tough one, but then it's like everyone wants to jump in. So so at what point do you think like for example like in in financing rounds, you know like that tipping point happens. Well, in our case, um, it was nice that we were able to build up revenue early. And I think different different companies just don't have that luxury. But for us, um, we were able to buy and sell cars. And so we could actually generate a fair amount of revenue. Even if we were selling, let's say, 25 cars a month, uh, that's still s sort of, you know, depending on how you think about it, um, you know, if each car is a $10,000 car, we might be doing is that 250k a month in in GMV revenue, um, and and I guess the interesting part about that to me was when we decided to buy and sell cars without really having Shift.com at all established or without really knowing what what we were trying to prove. Even we kind of said let's launch and start doing this, and we will um, we will learn a lot in the process. And we we almost didn't actually. We actually kind of were like well this is already a solved problem. There's car flippers who flip cars all the time on Craigslist. Are we actually doing anything different? Are we actually going to learn anything different? And it turns out that we did learn a lot, but it also allowed us to um, refine what we were doing, show some traction and, and articulate our early learnings um, and have revenue, which I think all of those things pushed us over the edge to really get the, the, the flywheel going, which is, you know, we had a few hundred thousand dollars, which was allowed us to um, you know, do a little bit, you know, get the cars washed and detailed. Um, but then that was enough to get us to a point where we had revenue and we actually had a fair amount of refinement of our early learnings. And I know that, uh, that obviously, you know, you guys had the, you know, the business model, you know, that was something that, that you guys really needed to get right. And, and that came also with, with some restructuring and some layoffs. So what happened there? Well, yeah, that came a bit later. So, I mean, so we had all these learnings. Um, we then, one of the learnings, and this is a very San Francisco learning, but one of our learnings was we were doing this a lot and we were trying to prove that people would just trust us to pick up their car, even though we weren't giving them cash for their car. So we were able to prove that people would essentially sort of the consignment model did work because we people were were letting us show up you know even our intern could show up and look like a you know a 19 year old kid and show up and say hey i'm here 
to pick up your Porsche, give me the keys and, you know, and drive off with their car. So we were able to prove that a lot of things like sort of the consignment model worked. Um, and with that, we were able to do a good job of buying and selling cars. So we got pretty good at buying and selling cars. Um, we, the very San Francisco thing is we found that a lot of people were buying Teslas and that we were helping them with their, because Tesla doesn't take a trade-in, unlike most dealers, which will take your trade-in if you have a car to sell. So we ended up in this great partnership with Tesla, which allowed us to raise our Series A, which allowed us to grow a lot. Um, so now we've grown a fair amount because we've raised a large-ish Series A. We have a partnership with Tesla. We're growing a lot. Um, but our unit economics aren't really working. Um, so our NPS is great. Everyone loves us, but you know, everyone can love you if you're, if you're giving them, you know, a thousand dollars and only charging them $900. Right. Right. So, so, uh, you know, the unit economics weren't working enough to cover our costs. Um, and, and not to say we didn't make some money on the sale of the car, but not enough to really cover our costs of doing that. And so, and yet we had VC at that point, we had very, you know, legitimate Sand Hill Road investors that we just raised from. And we kind of faced this question of, are we going to be able to continue to grow with unit economics that don't really work? Or is that, is that foolish? Like, do you sort of believe in lean startup or do you believe in blitz scaling? Um, and we could continue to build market share, but what we decided was, um, it, the used car business is so large it's over a trillion dollars that you don't have to have a hundred percent of the market. You could be extremely successful with 5% of the used car sales. And so we decided that we needed to get our unit economics working. Um, and in order to do that, we were looking at sort of, do we expand, expand geographically or do we expand in sort of the depth of our offering? Um, and we decided to expand the depth of our offering, which is to say, in addition to just selling the car, we expanded into financing and warranties. And financing and warranties are a much more difficult sale. Um, they require, um, usually you're in front of a computer, there's a fair amount of um, calculation um, and sophistication in terms of the options that you can provide to a customer. They were much harder for the workforce that we had hired to do in the field. And so we'd had a workforce that were essentially driving cars around, picking them up and dropping them off to customers, um, which is a big part of our value add, which is you can just click a button and we will bring a car to your house for you to do a test drive. Um, and that car had been brought to someone by someone who was essentially a driver. Um, but once we, um, once we offered financing and warranty, we need to change our workforce. And that meant that we changed our model from sort of a sales team in the field to having um, an inside sales team that was sitting centrally and doing most of the sale and customer relationship from the phone. Um, and that meant that we did a riff. Our, well, number one, our unit economics weren't, weren't working. And number two, we just had the wrong people in the field. And so we had to lay off some people and really take a hard look at our business. And, you know, it was, at the time, it felt reasonably existential. Like, we're, we've grown really fast. If we can't make the unit economics work, then we're not going to be able to survive. So let's, let's retrench, let's cut burn. Um, because better to do that and have a, a business that, that survives than, than keep doing what we're doing. But it was really hard because I felt extremely responsible for the people's that we'd hired everyone's careers. 
Um, and yet because I felt responsible, I then also felt responsible to be the person to do the layoffs myself. Um, and so that was a hard decision and a hard period in our life. Luckily it worked. Um, otherwise we might not be talking today, but, um, but yeah, we, we did that, um, in between our series A and our series B. Well, obviously things uh, definitely pan out uh, well because the company, you know, is, uh, is killing it. So how many, how many employees does the company have now? It's a good question. I'm actually not sure. Probably like 300 uh, or something like that. Two or 300. Yeah. Something like that. And it has raised uh, hundreds of millions, right? Yes. Yeah, that's true. Wow. So then why do you decide to leave between the Series C and the Series D? Well, uh, you know, a few things. And on the personal front, one was that I, I really needed, wanted to move back to L.A. Um, so I'm back uh, in the house that I grew up in, which is awesome, living with my parents. Um, and so geographically, it was time for me to make a move. But also the company was in a stable spot. And um, I think my skill sets are actually best matched with um, doing early stage work. I um, had become an angel investor and was interested in um, in being an investor. Uh, I wasn't quite sure whether um, whether VC was right for me, but I ended up deciding that we needed to move, we being myself, my uh, my husband and my three kids, we moved to LA um, without knowing what I would do for work, but no. um, but Shift was in a place, um, and I remained very close with my co-founders, of course. And um, you know, I think it was it it felt like a big deal to me at the time, but I think we managed to do it amicably. It wasn't a rushed thing, um, and you know, some of it also for me was that I was having a third child, yeah. and um, and so. You know, it was just a good chance to kind of think about what's important, and um, and we managed to do it in shifts. Now, you know, uh, I'm sure they. Yeah, I was going to say they don't miss me, but um, but I'm still good friends with them. But uh, you know, I, it was a good time to to make the move. And obviously, now you made the move, and you made the move to the other side of the table. So, <laughs> what, how is this? How is this uh, change, and especially how is this change in perspective? Because before you were pitching, now you're being pitched. Yeah, it's, uh, it's great mostly. So I'm, I get to do what I enjoy doing, which is working with early stage companies again. Um, and you know, one of the things that if you go through rocket ship growth, either at Google or at shift, like one of the things is we made so many mistakes and what you most want is to feel like all those painful moments and those mistakes and the successes were, were not for naught, like they, that they were for a good reason and that they can be useful to someone sometime. And so working with early stage teams, sometimes I think, I don't know what I could possibly offer to this team. And yet I think that, and yet when I get involved, there are many things that, um, that I've been through when it's just, you know, everything from really tactical things, like we were talking about, like doing hiring, um, and doing, you know, goal setting exercises to, to introductions or to perspective or, you know, there, there are many things that it turns out that if you have done this for the past couple of decades, you've seen some, some stuff. So I, I love being back at the really early stages of company building and um, finding product market fit before, you know, before the company is really large and harder to maneuver. So, um, so that early product market fit phase suits me really well. Um, and then also just the chance to, hear from extremely smart entrepreneurs who, um, come and want to tell me about 
like educate me. I mean, I feel like it's sort of an educate me on what they're doing. Um, and I get to learn so much and then find people who I feel like are a great fit, um, you know, mutually a great fit and, um, and then help them really get to the next level of, of, you know, realizing their vision. So we're funding people. Um, usually it's sort of their first bigger institutional round. So a lot of people have raised say, you know, 500 K in a friends and family type round, but this is their first time where they're raising $2 million and it's no longer, you know, raised from, from people they know. Um, and, you know, I feel like that's an amazing thing to be able to give someone their first $2 million check to really get off to the races and building what they set out to build. A hundred percent. No kidding. No kidding. Those big checks, those, especially the first ones, you know, they're always uh, really amazing. Uh, it's a great, great experience. Uh, I guess uh, now for the people that are listening, you know, I'm sure that there is a, uh, and you were touching on this product market fit, especially for those that are, you know, still going back to the drawing board that, you know, maybe they don't see the metrics or the retention or, or, or maybe like the product, like flying off the shelves, they haven't achieved that moment yet. What piece of advice would you have for them? Yeah, well, one of one of the pieces there is knowing really clearly what are the what is the vision, what are the must-have versus what are all the pieces, what are all the assumptions that you're making that can be loosened or revisited. Um, because I think sometimes we get stuck because we think that something needs to be solved when really it doesn't need to be solved. It's the wrong, it's not solvable or it's the wrong, wrong problem to solve. And so, you know, the one thing I would have done differently at shift, I mean, no, there's many things, but one is, uh, defining the most important thing to solve. Like what is our vision? It's to make used car buying and selling easier. And it isn't let's make used car buying and selling easier by not becoming a dealership, by bringing cars to someone's house and by having a flexible workforce. All of those things were things we thought we wanted to do, but when it gets right down to it, if, if those are intractable, then you've got a lot of intractable pieces. And it turns out that we set out and said, we, we do not want to be a used car dealership. Um, but what we found is in certain states, including in California, we had to get our car, our, our license to be a car dealership. Um, and, but we tried to like find all these ways around it. And then at some point we just said, wait, we're just contorting ourselves. And I think I see that a lot of times as people are contorting themselves to find something that works. Um, but, but maybe they're solving the wrong problem. Got it. And the, one of the questions that, that I typically ask the, um, guests that come on the show is knowing what you know now, if you had the opportunity to go back in time and give yourself one piece of business advice before launching a company, what would that be and why? Because I mean, now it's been a journey for you. Now you, you've been through it all. Yeah. I mean, on the, on the personal side, I, I, it, I would tell people that it, it will be okay. Sort of, um, it'll all be fine because there were many times where I, I, it was really hard. And, and even at Google where everyone said, you know, isn't it the greatest place to work? Isn't this the best job ever? Um, and there were times where my product was delayed and I felt like I was failing and I didn't agree with my tech lead and, um, and it was still hard. And I think that there are times where it's just fantastic to jump out of bed. And there's times where, um, you need to, to show up and tell the truth and hope for the best. And you can't really do more than that. So, um, so I think it's just, it's a, it's, it's the multi-decade view of, of sort of the roller coaster that is startup life. Yeah, I fully agree. And obviously now, I mean, you're, 
you're very active. Uh, you have your own podcast, LA Venture uh, podcast, uh, and they obviously like out there seeking wonderful entrepreneurs. So what, what are the sectors that you're specializing on, Mini? Sure. So we look at, um, we're pretty broad. Uh, we don't believe that we should be the VC in the conference room, you know, writing on the whiteboard, coming up with the investment thesis. What we like are these big legacy industries that are ripe for disruption and then meeting entrepreneurs who really understand the space that they're um, disrupting. Not like, not unlike um, going after the used car business, um, but we see people in agriculture and education in healthcare, um, these big in trucking, you know, these big spaces, but someone who deeply understands the space coming to us. And then usually we tend to invest when there's software and data involved as the technical moat. Very cool. And for the folks that are listening, Mini, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, well, I am Mini at 10110.net. And um, I really appreciate when people uh, check out my podcast because it's aiming to be useful advice for founders. Fantastic. Well, Mini, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Well, thank you so much for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.